begin this morning with Luke chapter 19, the first 10 verses. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, and he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried, came down, and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And as Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come to you this morning again, Lord. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for your Son who has gone to the cross and died in our stead, Lord, and imputed unto us his righteousness that we may be presented without spot or blemish in your eyes, Lord. And we just pray that this morning as we read this particular account in Luke that we don't see Zacchaeus, the wee little man, but God, that we see ourselves as weak, weary men and women. Men who, for the crowd, can't see you. For the flesh, we're unable to know who you are. But God, you're faithful to seek us out, to draw us near to Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would humble us this morning, forgive us of our sin, cleanse us of our iniquity, that we may be reminded who the man of the flesh is, but who the man Christ Jesus continues to be, that we may die to sin and to self and be sanctified by a holy, righteous God. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us this morning through the text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so we'll begin with verse 1. It said, He entered Jericho and was passing through. Speaking of Jesus, chapter 19 begins an account that many people are extremely familiar with in one sense. We teach it to children in Sunday school. It may be one of the first Bible stories that you would teach your child as they're coming of the age to sit still and listen. But we typically place an emphasis on the fact that this is a man of a small size who climbed a tree to see the Son of God for himself. It appears the emphasis is almost always placed on a man's size and the housing by which he would invite Christ in. But we miss the spiritual connotations of this particular story, this particular event. It's my prayer today that we see this through a gospel lens, that we see it through the magnificence of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done 
And what we'll find is that there are nine verses followed by a tenth monumental verse that describe for us the Christian life. They describe for us the work that Christ has done and continues to do in the life of each and every believer. So I pray today that we'll see the culmination of those things as we reach the tenth verse. And this passage doesn't just deal with a man who is needing a Savior, but it deals also with the deity of Christ, who He is and the work that He'll perform. And it deals with the deity of Christ amidst the sinful nature of mankind. Not only will these things come to light, but also we as New Testament believers will experience through the life and the story and the short account of Zacchaeus the miracle of conforming and being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we look in verse 1 says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. This is speaking of Jesus. This wasn't His final destination as we know, but He was just passing through. Some may consider it a coincidence when they read this, that He would pass through and happen upon a man who was in need of a Savior, who would climb a tree and do anything that he could to see this Jesus. But we know that because of the will of God, these things were foreordained, and he was passing through with this particular purpose so that at this moment today we could read about Zacchaeus and see ourselves and see Christ in these Scriptures. Remember we said that in the first verse he was just making this passing journey? But we recognize that this was just one step that resembles every step of every Christian walk. The beginning of each and every life. This is a reality for us. As we see that this wasn't Christ's final journey. He continues to journey the same way that He is seeking out Zacchaeus. He's seeking out you and I and the, the brethren that will soon realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, that will repent of their sins and have faith in Christ so he's continuing in one sense his, his work, his journey. How can we know? How do we know that this is true, that God continues in the person of Christ to move amongst his people? It's very simple because in Luke chapter 10, we see that Jesus himself commissions his disciples to go forth, some 70 in the face of adversity, they're to go forth. He says, as sheep among wolves, they're to go, proclaiming, the impending kingdom of God, the kingdom that is at hand, the kingdom that is near, the kingdom that is to come. And so we too are to bring the truth of the cross so that men may receive it by the power of the Spirit and that some may be saved. Some will be spared. They'll be spared the wrath, the condemnation, the damnation that all men deserve. This is just the power of Christ through the gospel of Christ. This is the truth that Christ dwells in us. Surely, the feet of the saints are the means by which Jesus continues to move as His Spirit also is set in motion effectual to those elect in Him before the foundation of God. So in one sense, when we read this passage, we see that Jesus is physically moving. His feet being those feet that we're to resemble, that we're to imitate bringing forth the truth of who He is and what He's done. And now, as we recognize ourselves as a type of Zacchaeus, 
We've received the gospel. Now our feet are supposed to be those feet that bring the message of Christ to the elect. Though we don't know them, that's why we can't be hyper-Calvinists. We must go out. We must share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's no tattoo, there's no sign, there's no mark that we can understand that will be a person that will rightly respond to the gospel. So we go forth not because we can pick out who will respond to the gospel, but because we do so out of obedience. Romans 10 verse 15 expresses the fact that we should be set in motion. As the Old Testament book of Isaiah is quoted, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We recognize that because of this, because we are bringing news of Jesus Christ, we recognize our Savior has not been stilled. He's not stagnant. He's not unmoving. And then John chapter 5 verse 17 says, uh, as Jesus is defending the Sabbath, my Father is working until now and I am working. As Jesus was on earth, He was proclaiming that He was working. Now surely this was speaking of the healing miracles of the incarnate God as He fulfilled His earthly ministry, but I believe everyone in this room can in fact emphatically say that Christ is still at work. He's working on the person next to you. He's working on the person behind you. He's working in the lives of all the believers that you know, but most surely He's working in our own lives. He's working in you. He's working on me. And we'll see this morning just how his work is done in the life of Zacchaeus. And likewise in the likeness of every man to come. Men who are spiritually dead in sin and trespasses. And so we make our way to verse 2. It says, And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich so we're introduced to this small man a chief tax collector it says that he was and in realizing that he's a chief tax collector then we have a proper perspective of the place of jericho it was no ordinary place it must have been wealthy it was a prospering city and here we have a man who is not unique in that not only is he a tax collector, but it says he's chief. And you say, well, that seems like he may be unique. In one sense, he is. He's a chief tax collector. He's above some other people. But I want you to remember that word chief because I think it, it tells us a lot about the nature of this man. He has other people working for him, other people working under him. He's a boss, so to speak. He's a man of prominent position and authority. He's telling other people what to do who work for him. No doubt some, just like today with the IRS, probably hated to see Zacchaeus coming. Here comes that tax collector. He's probably start hiding and moving and, and doing things to, to get away from him. Probably didn't come to the door. You know, just trying anything to avoid him. But the text tells us that he was a rich tax collector, which wouldn't have necessarily been uncommon, but we know from Matthew that tax collectors were greedy people. They're referenced several times in the New Testament. Never anything very popular amongst the people. 
Never anything good to say about tax collectors. or I haven't yet read one. But it says that they were greedy people. And then Mark chapter 2 shows us that they were hated. Even the Pharisees hated these people. Now we know that these were people that typically hated God. And so we would expect that they would embrace anything that was biblical, That was in contrast to what the true God expected. But they even hated tax collectors. It's kind of unique. They were represented by Jewish men who worked for the Roman authority. They were sometimes, most oftentimes, Jewish men collecting taxes for Romans. They were exercising this ability and this authority to collect money from a people who didn't really belong to the people who were collecting the taxes. They were placing a, a, a unique, oppressive burden upon their own people by the authority of the Roman rule. And so as we said, it was mentioned that he was rich. How ironic that just one chapter previous, Jesus speaks of a parable of how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So here in verse 2, we have a man who by his nature hates God, Zacchaeus. He's rich. He's greedy. He oppresses his own people. Some who would have been the people of God. And in turn, they hate him. They despise him. And he's now wealthy because he's placed a a unique, heavy burden on the people that they don't deserve. He has no chance to enter the kingdom of God. He has no chance to be at peace with God, to be reconciled to God because he's greedy like every man since Adam. He's selfish like every man since Adam. And he has corrupted his inner man because of the flesh, because of idolatry. We move to verse 3 and it says, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. There's a little caveat unto this statement. He was trying to see who Jesus was. didn't say he was trying to see Jesus. didn't say he was trying to see James didn't say he was trying to see Mary, someone that he might know, but he said he was trying to see Jesus, see who he was. He didn't even know. He just knew, hey, this is a man. Everybody's looking at him. He may or may not have known his name, but he didn't know who Jesus was. This is the part that we begin to see the deity of Christ revealed. He has no idea who Jesus really is. He's wanting to see him. Zacchaeus, keep in mind, is a, is a natural man. He's still acting according to his nature. He's yet to realize the person of Christ, the work of Christ to come. He had no idea that this is God before him. So he's still a sinner. The mystery of Christ is still hidden from Zacchaeus. Yet God is drawing him to the person of Christ. And his understanding of who he is is still in its infancy. He has very little knowledge of this person. But God is causing him to come to see who Christ is. And we know that there is nothing physically attractive about the man of Christ. There's nothing that men would want to desire. He had no form or comeliness, the text says in Isaiah. Something has brought Zacchaeus to Christ and it's not Zacchaeus himself. He's in the vicinity of the Lord. 
yet it's not something that he would naturally do. And the text tells us no matter how hard he tried, his stature prevented him from seeing. It says he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. He couldn't see this man who he's trying to get a glimpse of. There's a lot of spiritual truth in this particular text, in this particular portion of the text. The nature of man is such that no matter how hard, how willing we are, or how willing someone else is, it will never be a willingness to know Christ. We're unable to know Christ on our own. We're unable to be prayed by someone else or be born into a family automatically knowing who Christ is. It's just impossible. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. He must reveal Himself. And so we see this in Zacchaeus, that this is unnatural for a man to desire Christ, for him to desire to see Christ, to know Christ. There must be something miraculous going on here. John 1 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. This would reveal to us the truth that Zacchaeus, if he's operating according to his flesh, would never have gone amongst the crowd. He would never have climbed a tree to see Jesus, and he certainly never would have welcomed him or taken him home. But the Spirit of God is at work, if we believe John chapter 1, verse 13. Because he is a sinful man, we'll later see from the text that he is, we know that his sin has separated him from God. His natural choice is to oppose Christ. To hate God, not to embrace Him. His natural choice would be to reject Christ. And as we know, if he's rejecting Christ, he's also rejecting God the Father. But we take the text back at this point to see his stature. It says he couldn't see over the crowd because he was small in stature. The flesh... His natural build prevented him from seeing Christ. He's unable because he's small to see Christ. This is a picture of how the flesh separates us from God. Because of the flesh, because of our natural man, we're unable to see Christ for who He is. He's just a name to the natural man. He's just a story. He's just for some an example. But for the spiritual man, he's much more than that. He's God. He's God incarnate. He's the sacrifice for our sins, the only one sufficient. Zacchaeus has yet to see this. Just as he's unable because of his physical man to see Christ, literally in this passage, it speaks to how we're unable in the flesh to see God, to see Christ for who He is. Because of our limitations. The fact that the flesh has separated us. But what we see here is that the power of the infinite God can do many mighty works. This is the miracle of regeneration that we'll see. It's a grace of God. The Spirit bringing remembrance to this text as we consider this. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. When he's looking for the, a son of Jesse to anoint. And the Lord says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. He thought, surely this is the son I'm to anoint, but it wasn't. It was the last, David. He said, 
I have rejected him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, what does that mean? If the Lord is to look on the heart, then before a man even recognizes his anointing, his salvation, the Lord must change that heart. Because if he's looking at the heart, it's a heart of stone, there's no hope. He must have been doing a work, and likewise we see a work that's being done in the life of Zacchaeus. This should cause us to wonder, what does the Lord see when He looks upon our hearts? What does He see when He looks upon your heart? Or my heart? Does He see a heart of stone, or does He see a heart of flesh that He Himself has placed there? Is there a supernatural work that He Himself has begun? Is this heart of stone removed? According to Philippians chapter 1 6, it says, He will continue it until it is finished, which will not be in this life, but on the day when Christ returns for his people. So we have this promise here that if the Lord is to look upon our heart and we've been chosen, we've been elect, then he'll continue that work, that regeneration, that transformation, that conformation to the person of Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. It's important that we understand this, that the work is not of Zacchaeus because he climbed the tree and because he looked out and saw the Lord, but the Lord came to him, He sought him out. He caused him to be drawn to His person. So we must never take credit for salvation. We must never take credit for finding Christ or for quote-unquote accepting Christ. It's a work of the Lord's. In fact, your physical stature never aids you. The flesh never helps you find Christ. Consider this, Goliath, we're told, was huge. Physically superior to every man in existence. As far as physical uh, build and limitations are concerned. He was superior to everyone in every way, but he failed. Samson... He was normal. I know a lot of people like to draw this picture of Samson being some muscle-bound you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he wasn't. The Bible doesn't tell us that. It just tells us that he was strong. The, the miracle of Samson being strong wasn't because he had muscles to back it up. It's that he was a normal man. That the Spirit gave him the power to do the things which he did. And so he was normal, but he excelled with strength because the strength came from God. We're made tall, some of us made short, few of us fat, some of you skinny, some strong and some weak. Those are the physical bodies that you've been given. It isn't necessarily by choice, but it is by God's will and for His ultimate glory that each one has these certain physical limitations. And then sometimes they're not limitations, sometimes they're aids. But the truth is that no matter how these things are, are brought together, no matter how we view our physical bodies, they just never help us to know who Christ is. It's a spiritual matter. It isn't just our flesh that presents a problem. Problem in seeing Christ for who He is. But consider also it speaks of a crowd. In this case, the unbelieving, war, the unbelieving world, it says he was unable because of the crowd. 
So first his flesh limited him because he's short, but the crowd was limiting his ability to see Christ. And I think a lot of times we just pass over the fact that that crowd has caused him to miss Christ. Has caused his view to be skewed. He can't see. He's unable. But this is just a spiritual revelation to us of the world. The flesh of the world. We're to be in it, but not to be of it. The world will cause us to miss Christ if we're not focused on a relationship with Christ. If we're focused on the physical things rather than the spiritual. You see, Zacchaeus was going to climb a tree because the crowd kept him from seeing just like the world will keep you from seeing Christ. Just like sometimes your friends, your acquaintances, your co-workers... Your family may prevent you from seeing Christ because they're bringing sin into your life and you're so accepting of it. All of us are guilty. If we get caught up in the things of the crowd, the things that are popular, the things that the flesh enjoys, then we'll miss Christ. We'll be drawn away. And so we need something else to cause us to seek Him out. That's the Word of God. The Spirit of God. We have to be careful that the world doesn't cause us to miss out on the spiritual things. It doesn't cause us to forsake our assembling together. That a football game doesn't cause us to want to leave church early or to miss a fellowship. You know, that's that's the truth. That's the crowd represented in Luke chapter 19. And then we get to verse 4. It says, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Because of the physical limitations, because of the crowd, he had to find some other vantage point so that he could see Christ. So we were told that he climbed up into a sycamore tree so he could just take a glimpse of Jesus as he would pass. And then verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must Stay at your house. As Jesus approached, he looked up, and a miraculous thing happens. The the Bible tells us that he calls Zacchaeus by name. Jesus, the God-man in the flesh, now is given the name of Zacchaeus, and he calls up to him and tells him to come down. He orders him. And he doesn't say, just come down. But he says, hurry down. Come down quickly. Jesus would then go to his house, but there's something that we'll miss there too if we don't watch the text very closely. He says he told him to hurry down. Why? Because the gospel is important. It's time sensitive. We can't walk around and act like we have the luxury of just taking our time with the gospel as we present it, as we now are a type of Christ presenting the gospel just as Jesus would present the gospel to Zacchaeus, who he is and the work that he's doing, the work that he would do on the cross. We must also have this burden to quickly have those come to Christ. It's not by our own power, but the power of the gospel that we preach. But it is time sensitive. He must hurry without delay. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You know the lyrics. He didn't ask to stay with Zacchaeus. He didn't ask him to come down. But he commanded 
We see that nowhere else does Jesus command someone to take him in their house throughout the New Testament accounts. But what is interesting is that he certainly is the one who commands his coming in. This is speaking not just of a house that Christ will physically go into, but it's speaking of the temple, the house of God that is the body that belongs to Christ. He's commanding that you let him in. He's not waiting for a response of the flesh of man, but he's prompting a response by the power of his spirit against your will that he will come in. He's saying, I am coming into your house just like he's coming into your life. For those who are truly elect of God, there is no putting him off, sending him to a motel, sending him somewhere else. The grace of God in salvation is simply irresistible. And that's not talking about a song. But it's, it truly is irresistible to the point that you will not deny Christ. He is commanding you to come in just as He commanded Lazarus to be raised. You can't stop it. It's not up to man. It's not up to your flesh. But He's conforming. So why did He do this? Why did He command Him to come down and command that He would be staying with Him? It's simple. It's simply this, that the ability to reject Christ is something that the natural man will suggest that he has. And by all means, it's not the ability. It's the only thing that we want to do. We want to reject Christ. But by the power of the Spirit, by regeneration, we're able to respond appropriately to the gospel. It's a spiritual truth that in order to receive the blessings of Christ, the person of Christ, the benefits of Christ, the union that we have as the church in Christ, that we must come down. We're all, so to speak, in a sycamore tree. We must be made lowly. Our high thoughts and our perspective that causes us to be lifted up in pride above everyone else, we have to come down. We must decrease that we would not remain blinded to the gospel. Jesus was basically telling, you can see me from up there, but you need to come down. You must die to your pride. Jesus is coming to your house. He's coming to my house. And he's demanding that we let him in. We must decrease. This is not a house that will temporarily house the Spirit of God or the person of Christ. But the Bible tells us that it's a permanent indwelling. One that when Christ comes into your house, not only is He just coming in to stay, but He's going to make sure it's clean. He's not going to wait for you to clean it up. He's coming when He wants to and it's going to be clean. And He's going to clean it. He's the only one who can cleanse it. It's stained. Your temple is worthless without Christ. It's blemished without Christ. But not only will He come and stay forever, but He'll clean that house. And He's coming against your natural desire. Verse 6 then says, And He hurried and came down and received Him gladly. He received Christ gladly. How could a natural man do this? 
He relays a proper response to Jesus. He knew that Zacchaeus would, and he knows that we would, inside naturally reject him, but he's caused our heart of stone to be replaced with a heart of flesh. He's changed our desires. He's conformed us. Even in the very beginning, knowing that some will reject according to their nature, and others will follow and receive him gladly. Why? Because we recognize we have a need that no one else can fill. Only Christ can fill the need. Zacchaeus was made aware that Christ was his only hope. John chapter 3 verse 30 says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Not only must we decrease, but we must die to self. We must rejoice in affliction that the spiritual man is being renewed. There's a great truth to that. That in affliction, the spiritual man is being renewed. He's being reminded of the gospel. We can leave our place of earthly prominence for a lowly position where our vantage point is no longer from the lens of the flesh, but from the lens of the spiritual man. Where 2 Corinthians chapter 4 models this promise for us, for those of us who are in Christ, it says, This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We'll see that as he comes down, Zacchaeus doesn't just come down and come to Christ, but he's humiliated. The people recognize him as a thief, as a greedy man, as a liar. He's broken says he's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal the tree really didn't help Zacchaeus he climbed up only to climb right back down he didn't need to see with his eyes but he needed to see with his heart the person and work of Jesus Christ Verse 7 says, When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You see, not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, but it says he was a chief tax collector, meaning that he was in charge of other people. But I believe this coincides with what Paul says. We know that the Bible looks at tax collectors as sinners, as liars, and then they call him chief. He was chief sinner. He was chief liar. He was chief greedy man. I think that's why the word was even pinned there. To relay for us, not only is he a tax collector, but he's chief. He's the greatest. Just as Paul says, he's the greatest among sinners. This is how we should view ourselves. I say, before you say amen to that he's chief tax collector, you ought to say ouch talking about us it's talking about me it's talking about you you're the chief tax collector you're the chief sinner you alone have crucified Christ we're all a bunch of tax collectors we're heaps of sinning flesh and if it weren't for God's great mercy and the grace in your life you wouldn't be looking at Zacchaeus saying oh man this is awful because your parents would have named you Zacchaeus you would have been a chief sinner. And you would have been shamed by the name that you've made for yourself. 
Verse 8 says Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, after he'd heard the comments that the people were making, he stopped and he said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. We begin to see the fruit that Jesus has brought forth. There's conviction coming forth in Zacchaeus' life. A lot of people say that for salvation, Zacchaeus is now ready to restore what he had taken. That's simply not the case. He hasn't been defined a salvation and given this task that he must do. No, he's been given salvation. Now he's willing to do something. He doesn't have to earn it, but praise the Lord, he, he, he wants to right the wrongs. He, he's not required of him to go back and pay. It, his salvation doesn't hinge upon the fact that he must give back fourfold. But the new desire of his heart is to restore that which was wronged. We simply can't undo all the sin that we have. It's, it's impossible. If we could, then we wouldn't need Christ. If there was the possibility that we could go back ourselves and fix it. That's what... It's not what Zacchaeus was doing when he said that he would do these things, that he would restore four times. He was showing us the abundance of the love and joy in his heart and the loss of his love for greed and gain. We've committed sin against the Holy God, but the fruit of our regeneration is such that through sanctification, we desire to reconcile what we can, what the Lord would allow us to. The great note to add to this is that Zacchaeus was even ready and able to restore beyond what the law would require. If he had stolen livestock and it would be found alive, he would restore twofold. If he had stolen and it was dead, he would restore fourfold. What he was saying, he said, I'm willing to repay to the maximum amount Beyond what would be required of me because of what you have done. Because of what you are doing, Christ, I'm willing to go beyond that which is required. Why? Because salvation isn't requiring something of us. But because we are saved, we're willing to go beyond what's required. Because of obedience. Because of love that we have for Christ. He found conviction. He began to see sin as you and I should see sin from a truly realistic perspective in such a way that he knew its severity was of the greatest. He had a new perspective on sin. Not only was it bad enough that he should give back a certain portion, but he should give back even more than that because he saw his sin as more severe than what the law saw sin. He began to see sin from a Christ-centered perspective, from a God perspective. It was filthier than what even the law could describe. The world would say how extravagant that he would give up all of that for this man. The crowd probably mocked him. He would give fourfold. This greedy Zacchaeus would give all of his possessions. He says, half of my possessions to the poor. He would give that up for Christ. The truth is this. If you and I saw sin as Zacchaeus did, we also would realize how magnificent God's grace, how magnificent God's grace is. And we would see that nothing of this life is equal to the possession that we have in Christ. 
to the treasure that we have in Christ. Consider this, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Speaking of the kingdom of God, think about this. He sells all that he has and buys the field. We have a treasure. The treasure is Christ. The good thing is we don't have to buy it. Zacchaeus recognizes that. He's not going to sell all this stuff. He's going to give it away. He doesn't even have room for the other things because he has Christ. That will take up every bit of his time, every bit of his person. He doesn't need earthly possessions. And so I'll ask, is Christ your treasure? Is eternal life worth finite possessions? Are you willing to give these things up? For Zacchaeus, he was willing to give them up. The mark of regeneration was a life change that brought about his willingness to give up his riches. The things of the world had already for Zacchaeus in just this one particular portion of time, not even a full day, it had already begun to pass away the things of the world. And he found true, true religion, charity, and love. And then verse 9 says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. He's saying, Today you have realized the redemption that you have in me, because you have faith. There's repentance. He's sorrowful over sin. Today you have realized salvation. In one sense, he's talking about spiritually. He's been saved, but the, the literal sense was there too. Salvation... Jesus, Hosanna, saved now. He's there in the presence in the house of Zacchaeus. It literally has come into his house. But more importantly, it's come into a spiritual home. The temple, the body of Zacchaeus. It says, because he too is a son of Abraham. We look to the book of John and when they speak of this, the Jews were always claiming to be sons of Abraham. They're quickly corrected and they're called sons of their father, the devil. Why? Because Abraham was a spiritual man. He looked to God. He had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. Zacchaeus now had the same faith. Now he is a son of Abraham. Expressing that same faith in Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David... To the point that he has been convicted of sin. He's repented of sin. He's sorrowful. He's following now Christ. And willing to give up everything else. And then the, the greatest portion of this. The last verse it says. For the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a spiritual reality. You didn't come climbing a tree because you knew who Jesus was and you wanted Him. You've been drawn to Christ. He's come to you. He's come to your town, to your house, to your tree. And caused you not to be lifted up longer in pride, but to become lowly. To be guilted by sin. He's come to seek you. He is the Good Shepherd. If you want to see... Where this point is being drawn from, turn a few pages back and we'll close with this from Luke chapter 15. We're talking about a Savior who is not only able, but willing to seek those lost sheep. Luke chapter 15. 
He's come to save that which is lost. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Him to listen to Him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So He told them this parable, saying, What a man among you is he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. This is the culmination of what we see in chapter 15 and 19 that Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, has left His bride in a field grazing on the Word of God, being renewed by the Spirit of God to come after one sinner, to come after you, to come after me. Not because we're sheep that got out and all of a sudden we want to come home. We don't care. We'll eat anywhere. We love uncleanliness. But He's come after us. He's left something good for something equally important to Him. One soul. One life. So we should look at ourselves and say, are we a crowd? Or are we a Zacchaeus? Do we need to climb down from our high positions? Do we need to die to our pride? Do we need to be reminded of our sin? Certainly we do. Reminded to the point and rejoicing at the same time that Jesus Christ has come looking for us and He knows where to look. He has to go to all the wrong places to find you. Amidst a field of sin and despair and iniquity, He comes in to bring you home. And He requires a proper response to the Gospel. So we've heard the words of Christ. We've heard about the person of Christ. How have we responded? Have we received Him glad? Joyfully? Or do we put Him on the back burner? Is He just a Sunday Christ? A Wednesday night Christ? Or is He the Christ in which we're willing to give half of our possessions to restore four times that which we've taken, that which we've stolen? Are you willing to give anything up for Christ? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as You've provided for us once again a a place to meet, a people to be joyful with Lord we thank you we thank you for your scriptures we thank you for your son we thank you for salvation Lord that you would seek out something so disgusting no one else would want us we're broken we're hateful we're disgusting but God you've come after us You've provided not only a place for us to go, but an inheritance, a rejuvenation. You've rebuilt that which was destroyed. 
You've cleansed that which was stained permanently. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to just pass through on his way to glory and stop for a lost sheep, to stop for a sinner. Lord, to bring us to repentance, to cause us to do that which was in opposition to our flesh, that we may find a new joy, a new treasure. And that's Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.